0: Shining City Audio, a John Meacham and C-13 original studio.
1: The first anti-lynching legislation was introduced in 1900 by Representative George Henry White of North Carolina. At the time, he was the only black person in the House of Representatives. And on March 29, 2022, President Biden signed the Emmett Till anti-lynching legislation into law. In 2022. Wow. After the first attempt in 1900, the legislation failed to pass more than 200 times, including in 1922, 1937, 2018, and 2020. And here we are, 122 years later, the bill has just been signed into law, classifying lynching as a hate crime for the very first time. Democratic Representative Bobby Rush of Illinois was one of the sponsors of the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. He served in Congress for almost three decades. And here he is giving an impassioned speech during a news conference in 2020, urging his colleagues to push the anti-lynching bill forward. Lynching, plain and simple, is an American evil. Many may consider lynching to be a relic of the past, but, as we all know, unfortunately, recent events have shown us that this is not the case. Today, we send a strong message that violence and race-based violence in particular, has no place in American society. The Anti-Lynching Act was named after Emmett Till, a 14-year-old Chicagoan who was brutally lynched in 1955 while visiting family in Mississippi. His body was found in the Tallahatchie River. His battered face was unrecognizable.
2: If the death of my son can mean something to the other unfortunate people all over the world, then for him to have died a hero would mean more to me than for him just to have died.
1: Till had been accused of whistling at a white woman. His brutal death emboldened the burgeoning civil rights movement, particularly for his grieving mother, who was thrust into the national spotlight. His open casket funeral showcased the ugliness and rot at the heart of the American experiment.
3: My
2: first reaction was to let the world see what is happening in the United States of America. I wanted the world to see, and I knew that I could not tell anybody what I had seen. It was just too
1: horrible. In a September 1955 press release, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, charged that, quote, it would appear from this lynching that the state of Mississippi has decided to maintain white supremacy by murdering children. Roy Wilkins, the executive secretary of the NAACP at the time, added, quote, The killers of the boy felt free to lynch him because there is in the entire state no restraining influence of decency. The restraining influence Wilkins was referring to was the law. White vigilantes committing violence against black people, for the most part, face no risk of consequences. In the absence of a law that punished acts of racial terror, brutality would continue indefinitely. Wilkinson's lamentation seems obvious, and it remains relevant today. In this episode, we travel forward through time, starting at Reconstruction to examine how law, a seemingly neutral arbiter of right and wrong, has an underappreciated impact on the push for equality. The rule of law and its absence has been a largely invisible barrier to progress. The century-long failure to pass sensible anti-lynching legislation is only one example. Federal housing legislation, which gave many middle-class white families the opportunity to build generational wealth, intentionally excluded Black people. The U.S. public education system, which, while imperfect, provides one of the most reliable paths to greater opportunity? It was created by Black Americans in the South when the law, again, excluded them. I'm Dr. Eddie Glaw Jr. And this is History Is Us, Chapter Two, Storm and Stress, Jim Crow, America.
3: We don't get the side of the story that is about this deep commitment to prepare young people for a future that has not yet been realized.
2: You can't kill enough people to keep them from the polls, but you can use violence to intimidate them away from the polls.
0: Those 20 million people put Black Lives Matter signs on their lawns and posters in their windows and moved on. Lentzian was pure terror to enforce the lie that not everyone belongs in America. Not everyone is created equal.
1: That's President Biden speaking in March 2022 as he signed the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act into law. That lie that he's referring to has been bolstered by a legal, social, and economic architecture which made it seem like the truth. So why did it take so long for the anti-lynching bill to pass? Efforts to introduce anti-lynching legislation cropped up in almost every decade since 1900. Every attempt was thwarted by the Senate filibuster or by legislators who insisted the issue should be handled by the states. Willful acts, politics, sustained white supremacy. Join me as we study that shameful chapter in the American story and search for lessons. We'll examine the structural conditions that give our nation its shape and explore the ways that black folk have persistently created space for themselves.
0: No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens.
2: Now that should have done it, right? There it was, signed, sealed, ratified by the states. It was law, and we were equal before the law. The amended constitution of the United States said so, but it wasn't that easy.
1: It was not that easy. The social and political transformations that defined the violence of the Jim Crow era had deep roots in the Civil War and Reconstruction period. The hopeful outlook of radical Reconstruction was short-lived. The rise of Jim Crow and its political terror would cast a dark shadow over American democracy for generations. Lynching, which peaked between 1880 and 1940, was not just a series of random acts of racially motivated violence. In fact, lynchings were meant to be instructive because they were so commonplace. Lynchings signaled to African Americans throughout the country that they could be next. It was an act of domestic terror. After Reconstruction's end, lynching increased exponentially. The attacks were a means of intimidation and a part of a concerted effort to block African-Americans from exercising the freedoms gained over the previous 12 years. These black people had to know their place, or they would suffer the violent consequences. The prominent activist and abolitionist of his time, Frederick Douglass, witnessed the change before his very eyes he saw the workings of those he called, quote, the apostles of forgetfulness.
2: He's an extraordinary figure in the sense that he experiences victory of his cause. How many radical reformers ever get to really live to see that? In his 40s. But he's going to live all the way into his 70s to see it essentially betrayed, but also falling to pieces. And the institutions that were built to try to sustain Black rights, black liberty, black freedom, and for that matter, the reinvention of this United States, that composite nation that he imagined, he sees all that beginning to fail by the 1890s.
1: This is David Blight again, who you heard from in episode one.
2: At the very end of his life, his last great speech is, of course, about lynching. It's the famous speech that he first crafts in 1893, and he gives it all over the country in 1894. When he's 76 years old and in bad health, he's got shaking hands. He's always got chest pains. But in that speech, he gives a kind of a three-part analysis of lynching.
1: Imagine, Douglas was born a slave. He lived long enough to see President Lincoln sign the Emancipation Proclamation and see the states of Mississippi and Tennessee pass the first Jim Crow laws.
2: At one point in that speech, he says, you know, a dead Negro is no longer a voter to kill a man means he is no longer a voter. It's his way of saying, yeah, you can't kill enough people to keep them from the polls, but you can use violence to intimidate them away from the polls. And he is capturing this idea that violence of all sorts, and now this hideous practice of lynching, is that you can intimidate people away from political life. It was the heartbreak of his life.
1: In the aftermath of the Civil War, new ways emerged for keeping Black people in their place in the United States, even amid the exciting developments of Reconstruction. A more formal architecture for codifying racial inequality was put into place. Jim Crow laws legalized racial segregation, and they legitimized white supremacy. By the turn of the century, the racist legislation that began as local laws on the books in southern towns, had made its way to a federal courtroom. The doctrine of separate but equal facilities, as established in the Supreme Court decision of Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896, was a big lie. Facilities, train cars, public parks, restaurants, and more were certainly separate, but they were nowhere near equal. The big lie about the failures of our nation— to live up to its promise when it comes to race, that racial inequality just happened or was the result of the failures of Black people themselves, obscures an important part of our national history. These unspoken laws were not just about lynching, not just about publicly explicit violence and segregation. The idea that residential segregation, for example, happened naturally, Is a key part of American myth making that often goes unchallenged. And that myth protects our innocence. But as James Baldwin wrote, quote, it is the innocence which constitutes the crime. One powerful example of what was happening can be seen in federal housing law.
2: Do you know how far your pay will go in buying a house? It may surprise you to learn that you can become a homeowner even on a small salary with a National Housing Act-insured mortgage.
1: Let's think about housing policy as early as the 1930s. Did black folks have the right to live with dignity in the homes and neighborhoods of their choosing? Richard Rothstein, a distinguished fellow of the Economic Policy Institute and a senior fellow emeritus at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, explains the complexities surrounding housing segregation.
0: We have a national myth that tells us that the residential segregation is something we call de facto. Something just happened in fact, not in law. It is completely divorced from the reality of how residential segregation was created. Rothstein
1: tells the powerful story of how federal, state, and local policy explicitly segregated metropolitan areas nationwide.
0: Federal government was a major player in the creation of segregation. The Federal Housing Administration, which was created to provide amortized mortgages for working class, lower middle class families to enable them to purchase homes, did so from its inception on a segregated basis, frequently creating segregation where it hadn't previously existed. We were a manufacturing economy at the time. And so if you had a factory district that was located near a deepwater port the railroad terminal and employed both black and white workers. They all were living in broadly the same neighborhoods. The Federal Housing Administration embarked on a program and intensified enormously after World War II, when the Veterans Administration joined as well, to move the entire white working class and middle class population out of those urban areas where they were living into single family homes in all white suburbs. It was a racially explicit program. Federal Housing Administration's underwriting manual explicitly said that you could not recommend for a guarantee of a bank loan to a developer of a project that was going to include African Americans in it.
1: So federal housing policies prohibited the sale or rental of homes in suburban developments to African Americans. If you force citizens into different neighborhoods based on race and then draw up maps for voting districts knowing full well that people from certain groups tend to vote in one way or another, then gerrymandering becomes really easy. If you make it nearly impossible for African Americans to purchase homes and build generational wealth by systematically denying them access to loans and refusing to sell them homes in certain areas, you've just reversed engineered a racial wealth gap.
0: White families who were subsidized by the Federal Housing Administration gained over the next couple of generations wealth, equity, from the appreciation and the value of their homes. African-Americans prohibited from participating in this wealth-generating program. White families used their wealth to maybe send their children to college to take care of temporary emergencies, maybe temporary unemployment, maybe a medical emergency. They used to subsidize their retirements. And they used it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren, who then had down payments for their own homes. Housing
1: segregation and predatory lending practices fueled the racial wealth gap. White families could purchase homes that appreciated, contributing to their families' assets and net worth. Conversely, Black people in metropolitan areas across the country were concentrated in high-poverty neighborhoods where subsidized housing was the norm. In other parts of town, African-Americans entered exploitative contract-for-deed arrangements, which were functionally home rentals with the added expense of home improvements. Black families have simply not had the opportunity to accumulate wealth in the same way that white families have. And yet, all too often, the racial divide in this country is explained with no reference to this history.
0: African-Americans were prohibited from participating in this wealth-generating program. Today, African-American family incomes are about 60% of white family incomes. African-American, you would think household wealth would also be about 60% of white household wealth. You can save the same amount of money from the same incomes. But in reality, while African-American family incomes are about 60% of white family incomes, African-American household wealth is about 5% of white household wealth. And that enormous disparity is entirely attributable to unconstitutional public policy practiced by the Federal Housing Administration, and the Veterans Administration, and that's never been remedied. We have an obligation as Americans to remedy as, under our Constitution. This was a massive civil rights violation.
1: None of this is accidental. Like the death of Reconstruction. Like state-sanctioned terror during this dark moment in African-American history, and like the design and implementation of the Jim Crow laws, these realities are the result of deliberate policy decisions.
0: How can we ever develop the common national identity that's necessary to preserve this democracy if so many African-Americans and whites live so far from each other? We have no ability to understand each other's life experiences in apartheid country. Where very little interaction between blacks and whites. The biggest antidote to racial discrimination is interaction. The connection between residential segregation and political polarization is very, very tight. The fact that African-American children have lower average achievement than white children is attributable in most part to the fact that black children come to school with serious social and economic disadvantages that impede their ability to learn. We have the achievement gap because African-Americans do come to school with higher levels of lead poisoning, with more asthma that keeps them up at night, coming to school drowsy, with more homelessness so that they uh, don't have a quiet place to study, with more toxic stress from being exposed to violence. This is why we have an achievement gap, because the wealth gap locks African-Americans into neighborhoods of concentrated disadvantage.
1: These intentional policy decisions still have their impact on our society today.
0: When you concentrate the most disadvantaged young men in single neighborhoods without access to jobs in the formal economy, without access to the transportation to get to those jobs, without opportunity to attend schools that aren't overwhelmed by social and economic problems, it's inevitable that the police are going to engage in confrontations with those young men and develop tactics of control, not of protection. The necessary to keep a disaffected, segregated community under control. In my view, residential segregation underlies our most serious social problems and racial inequalities.
3: I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet, and I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People.
1: by formal, intentional practices put into place by the government. Consider, for example, the Black Codes. The Black Codes revealed an enduring white preoccupation with social equality, and importantly, anxieties over Black labor. The codes were designed to compel Black folks to work. Black people were criminalized for not appearing to constantly toil. The codes stipulated when where and even how formerly enslaved people could work. They also detailed how much they could earn and provided loopholes for legally denying compensation. These state laws paved the way for contract labor, for chain gangs, for vagrancy law, debt peonage, and sharecropping. They in effect made another form of slavery possible long after slavery's abolition.
3: Then there's also this formal architecture of violence that happens through law characterized by extralegal violence, assault, lynching, beatings, and the like.
1: This is Imani Perry, the Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. She's the author of six award-winning books on the history of Black thought, art, and imagination. Most recently, she released her instant New York Times bestseller, South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon, to understand the soul of a nation. The Black Codes, which were initially introduced in states like Louisiana and Mississippi after the war, would lay the groundwork for the Jim Crow laws introduced in the decades after Reconstruction.
3: So, for example, most Black Americans in the South are doing some form of agricultural labor. And they are, as a function of how state legislatures are working, being forced into year-long labor contracts. This meant that the conditions of working on these farms or plantations was that they were often subject to physical violence and humiliation. So that in many ways, they were actually forced to return to conditions that were not that far from slavery.
1: To be sure, emancipation from slavery marked a substantive change in the lives of African Americans for which there was no precedent. But these advances were just the first steps in a long but still not complete march toward liberty and justice for all. However, a brief glance at our history as a nation reveals how easy it is to undo progress, to change the laws, to lose the moral will to build a more just society.
3: At the federal level, there's a state failure for protection. And at the state level, there's this aggressive posture of trying to bring them back as close to a position of enslavement as possible. But they are free. And I think this is really important because even as violent and diminishing and ugly establishment of Jim Crow was, the bits of freedom that black people have become The impetus for the building of an entire social, political, civic world.
1: Black people aren't reduced to passive objects of violence. In the face of the state's failures and the terror of some white Americans, they continue to raise their children to dream big dreams. They build educational institutions and found other organizations to secure their freedom. In other words, black people continue to fight for a more just America, even when the nation seems content with its ugliness.
3: They are creating institutions that in some ways get them out from under this position of subjugation. They build this robust institutional and associational life.
2: By latest figures, 23 banks are owned and operated by the race. Averaging a million dollars each in assets, these banks play an important role in promoting the growth of new businesses.
3: So they are creating schools. The desire to be educated is one of the primary desires of people who have been emancipated. They're building civic associations. They are building public life, whether that's in the form of social programs, community programs, educational programs. There's almost a collective decision once excluded from the dominant order, once excluded from political participation to turn inward and build an alternative space for civic and political and really citizenship types of belonging. I think it's really important to juxtapose the violence, the humiliation, the subjugation that is part of the larger social political labor world of Black Americans and what they build inside their communities, and how that becomes formalized. It becomes ritualized.
1: In spite of systemic efforts like housing policy to exclude and limit the life chances of African Americans during the Jim Crow era, Black people insisted on creating meaningful and culturally rich lives for themselves and their communities. Their determined pursuit of educational opportunity is particularly instructive. Decades removed from the conditions of slavery, of being what one historian called, quote, the creatures of another's will, Black people continued to resist subjugation through an abiding investment in education. Literacy and knowledge were seen as critical tools for freedom.
3: The sort of great under-acknowledged piece of Black social movement in the 20th century is the school as an institution.
1: Professor Imani Perry is one of the principal investigators for the Black Teacher Archive, a project to preserve and explore the history of African-American education.
3: Reconstruction governments are what actually brought public education to the South. Unlike Northeastern cities, for example, and even to a certain extent in the Midwest, where public school systems had been established, the South did not have a public school system to speak of.
1: There is a lesson for us all in how public schooling came about. Contrary to popular belief, the origin and development of universal schooling was not the result of white benevolence. One of the unexpected consequences of Jim Crow was the power of the segregated Black school a place where Black children could imagine themselves in the most expansive of terms and embrace a sense of political responsibility that would help catalyze a massive social movement.
3: It was really Black people in the context of Reconstruction government who were saying public education is essential for citizenship, for membership. And this is partly motivated by the exclusion and actually the absolute punishment and sometimes violence and death even For enslaved people who had learned to read. The investment in public education came through Black political participation, and then you get a public school system. And once Jim Crow is established, then Black people are excluded from public education, either by having schools that are funded in a relatively minimal way, or in many locations, only offering school for a relatively small number of years for Black students and so forth. So what happens is that You can see something really important in terms of the foundation of social movements of the 20th century in the school building agenda for Black people. In the context of the school itself, you find highly organized, ritualized practices. And the way that educators are sharing best practices is through state level Black teachers' organizations. And those state level Black teachers' organizations are gathering across a variety of types of schools. And talking about what kinds of skills the Black children need to acquire, how do you provide supplementary education such that they are learning about their own history and culture? And they're doing this through state organizations that are also networked in a national association, National Association of Teachers in College Schools. So I say all of that because as a precursor to the larger point about what happens at school, because Black teachers around the country are working together to cultivate a sense of what needs to happen in schools.
1: Black teachers collaborated to define and create a curriculum that catered to the intellectual, emotional, and cultural needs of Black children growing up in Jim Crow America. In segregated classrooms and schools, different lessons were being taught. Black students were equipped to imagine themselves beyond the constraints and deadly assumptions of a society that despised them. Of course, the classroom's rituals varied as well. Consider, for example, the common practice in the 20th century of singing the National Anthem. For many, the National Anthem conjures the familiar verses and bridge of Francis Scott Key's Star-Spangled Banner. But in black schools, African Americans sang an anthem of their own.
3: The story of the song that came to be known as the Black National Anthem or the Negro National Anthem earlier is most potent when you look at what's happening in segregated schools. Lift Over Your Voice and Sing was written by James Weldon Johnson and composed by his brother, John Rosamond Johnson. The idea was to write the song, initially was supposed to be an homage to Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Lift every voice and sing. James Weldon Johnson was inspired differently as he was trying to write. And it became this song that was really in honor of Black life on these shores, as it were. And they wrote it, it was sung by 500 school children in Jacksonville. The song became known as the National Negro Hymn or the National Negro Anthem, just in sort of an organic way coming out of Black communities and organizations. And part of what's so remarkable is that this is a time when the United States does not have a formal national anthem. So you get Black people thinking about themselves, as Gwendolyn Brooks would later say it, an internal colony, as some folks would say it, or just as this people, who did have a sense of belonging even while being excluded from real exercise of citizenship, the citizenship that they were supposed to be guaranteed by the Reconstruction Amendments, but had been excluded from? And these kids are standing up daily and singing this song, not just about the long, protracted struggle for freedom, but also being taught a lesson of how important it is to stay convicted and dedicated to one's own community and the ongoing struggle for justice and freedom. This is important because the story of segregated schooling is absolutely a story of deprivation, but we often only get that side of the story. We don't get the side of the story that is about this deep commitment from all sectors of society, of Black society, to prepare young people for a future that has not yet been realized, a future of freedom. So one of the things that I think is such a marvelous example of this is that every single prominent Black intellectual you can think of from the first half of the 20th century was involved in Black teachers' organizations, all of them. I mean, it's remarkable.
1: Black intellectuals understood the significance and importance of education for Freedom Dreams. Education had to play a central part in the fight. The students who belted out Lift Every Voice and Sing in Southern schoolhouses during the first decades of the 20th century would become the adults at the forefront of the mid-20th century civil rights movement. They were socialized and taught in institutions that came into being in response to the federal government's failures and betrayal. These children and the teachers who taught them refused to believe what the world said about them.
3: There are two ways that I think the history of what happens in the context of Black education ought to help us re-narrate the history of the civil rights movement. One is that you have several generations of young people, the very young people who find their way into the movement, who have been socialized to think of themselves in a counter hegemonic way, been socialized to think of themselves as deserving of full citizenship and have been socialized to think that part of their responsibility is to actually be engaged in the work of freedom fighting. There's a tradition that is about a kind of dignity, self-regard, political responsibility that comes through the schools. And then there's also the school as a site of confrontation with Jim Crow. And that begins before World War II. Some talk
1: about the afterlife of slavery as a way of noting the enduring impact of the peculiar institution on our country. Perhaps we need to talk about the afterlife of Jim Crow. To reduce this era to an extension of slavery, I think, misses something significant about the legal context of Jim Crow. And it also misses what this era unleashed, something about the significance of Black freedom, however constrained To be sure, the legacies of Jim Crow continue to shape this country. In 2022, the United States feels more segregated than ever before. We remain walking mysteries to one another. And the conditions for retrenchment and betrayal are eerily similar to what we have witnessed at other points in U.S. history.
3: It's not incidental that the effort to diminish voting rights coincides with an effort to shut off learning about the history of non-white people in this country. I mean, there's some, in some sense, those two concepts go together quite tidily. It's so deeply connected to what we're talking about with respect to the late 19th and early 20th century through the Jim Crow period. Because part of what was being done, frequently outside of the view of school system establishments, Was to provide a counter history, a reinterpretation, an argument that no, people of African descent weren't kind of ancillary partners to history, but actually had been involved in creating modernity. And this effort to, at this moment, control the accounting of the past has everything to do with excluding Black people from being understood as having a legitimate role in the nation state, right? Or having a stake that is fully recognized. There's also this sense that if we can look to the violence of the past and we can look to the violence of the present, and in both instances we can see the argument was that the violence was legitimate because the participation of Black people in the nation state is understood as a threat. It is seen as a sort of as a, a mechanism for losing power. There's a look to the history to legitimize Jim Crow. So then we have to think, well, what's happening now? Again, there is a commitment to past periods of exclusion to legitimize a current desire to actually sustain an idea or to reinvigorate the idea that this is a a white nation in which white people matter more. White people are fuller citizens. So it's all history. It is a repeated conflict over who counts as part of the society. Who has full access to rights? Who gets to participate? So we're there, again.
1: In so many ways, this moment of betrayal feels familiar. That we were on the cusp of change and forces throughout the nation in fear and panic shouted, no, history haunts. Reminds me of the words of James Baldwin. The horror is that America changes all the time without ever changing at all. So, where do we go next? What does it look like to march on? Is it possible to chart a path forward through the wreckage? Here's Richard Rothstein again.
0: I'm very hopeful. I focus on the fact that there were 20 million Americans who participated in Black Lives Matter demonstrations after the murder of George Floyd. Now, we're having a more accurate and passionate discussion about race in this country, the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow, more accurate and passionate than we ever had had before in American history. The problem is that that, those 20 million people uh, then went home, put Black Lives Matter signs on their lawns and posters in their windows, and moved on. And what we need now is a new civil rights movement that's going to organize those people to take, well, as John Lewis said, make good trouble if necessary.
1: Just for a moment, think about the extraordinary outpouring in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. Americans from all walks of life watched that horrific video of Derek Chauvin killing Floyd. And they were appalled. They took to the streets in the middle of a pandemic that was still killing Americans. And yet they demanded justice. Organized around a different form of policing, demanded a different America. But what has happened since those days? Where do we find ourselves in this country regarding genuine police reform? Or more broadly, where do we find ourselves when it comes to building a genuinely multiracial democracy. You know, I believe we are living in real time in a moment of betrayal where a large swath of the country has seemingly turned its back on the promise of democracy.
3: I do think that we have to do the work of becoming fit to battle. And by that I mean, if we saw in the face of all of that violence in the post-Reconstruction period, that There was multi-decades-long work in preparation for what would be the climax of social movement. I think we have to take that seriously. It means being engaged with the world, but it also means developing communities of resistance, not just communities of protest. Protest is important, but there have to be battles that are being waged at the ideological, political, and structural imagination of the new structure, those kinds of levels, in addition to the urgent response. It is a story of three steps forward, two steps back, or sometimes two steps forward, three steps back. And so if you understand that's the state that we're in, you have to be able to think long term. That's sort of what we do is we try to plan. We try to plot. We think about what did those folks do? We're looking around and seeing everybody, you know, kids only in school for three months a year because they have to work in the fields and folks getting lynched because they have a business and say in the face of that they still committed themselves to long-term righteous struggle so that's the least that we can do
1: coming up on the next episode of history is us we turn our attention to that struggle to the folks who did fight and marched through the streets for justice.
2: Those thousands and millions of people in the street have changed what we're talking about, worried about, thinking about.
1: To me, that was a moment where I said, my God, there is a courage that I'm not sure I have, but I'm so grateful that other people had it. History Is Us is a creation and presentation of Shining City Audio, a C13 Originals and John Meacham studio. It is executive produced by Chris Corcoran, and John Meacham. Narrated by me, Dr. Eddie S. Glaw, Jr. and written by Shelby Sinclair and me. Directed by Paige Heimson. Production assistance by Terence Malengar. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Andy Jaskowitz. Production and creative support by Lloyd Lockridge, Chris Basil, David Weisbord, Nikki Kovic, and Ian Mott. Artwork is by Kurt Courtney. Marketing and publicity by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schiff. Research by Shelby Sinclair and additional assistance from Dion Worthy and Elio Leah. Thank you for listening to Chapter 2 of History Is Us, a creation and presentation of Shining City Audio, a C-13 Originals, and John Meacham Studio. If you're enjoying this podcast, please rate, review, and follow it on your favorite listening platform so others can find and enjoy it as well.
0: The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company.
3: And why all the general Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone.
0: Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning Hulebrity queries.
3: Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, and Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.